Our sermon text this morning is from Exodus chapters 33 and 34. We'll start in verse 12 of chapter 33. Moses said to the Lord, See you say to me, Bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I might consider you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, Please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the word that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Be ready by the morning, and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai, and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you, and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. This is the word of the Lord. morning church would you come before the throne of God with me for just a moment father it's hard to even put into words the incredible significance of what we just read about you We just want to rest in it for just a moment. 
You are a God merciful and gracious and overflowing, abounding in steadfast love. And Lord, we need you to be that. Because as we look back over the course of our week, over the last month, over the last year, and we think about the ways that we have fallen short of the glory of God, we're mindful of the fact that it's not in us, it's nothing in us that would cause you to be impressed or to say, man, I wish I had that guy on my team, but it's all your grace. And so, Father, we just want to say thank you for that. And Lord, I just, I know you can see the hearts of every person in this room and every person watching online and every person listening later on. I can't. But just knowing what I know about human beings, I know there are people in this room who are having trouble believing that you are as good as you say you are. And so we pray, Spirit, come and do your gracious work of opening our eyes and pulling away the, the cobwebs of the lies of the world and the thorny briars that grow up in our hearts and choke out our love for you and cause us to see your glory. What makes you God? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Almost exactly 15 years ago, I stood facing a beautiful young woman on her mother's front porch as we made our marriage vows to one another. Uh, Like most of you who have gone through a similar experience, I remember so much about that day. I mean, it's unforgettable. I remember the, the rainstorm that blew in that morning just hours before our outdoor wedding with no other plans. I remember the the Twinkie lights strung around the property, wrapped around the fences and the trees. I remember uh, the the, the food that we didn't get to eat before we left. Uh, I even remember some of the things that the preacher said in his charge to the couple, if you can believe it. But I also remember a sort of happy hopelessness As I stood quietly waiting for the ceremony to begin, overwhelmed by the the surrealness, the realization that, like, this is happening, I, I had this unfamiliar overflow of emotion and the immediate recognition that I could not possibly ever express what was going through my mind, or even begin to describe the wonderful significance of what was about to take place. I, I wanted to say what was really going through my mind, but I knew, I just, I just knew I couldn't do it. It would be impossible to express. And without overstating the case, I can honestly say that the two, the, the two chapters that we're going to be looking at this morning for just a few moments leave me in a similar state of mind. If you haven't yet taken the time to read Exodus 33 and 34, you need to do that today. Take the time to read and meditate on these chapters because they are breathtakingly amazing in what they describe. And I just know that I cannot do justice to what is here 
to what God reveals about himself. And so I'm left with this happy hopelessness once again because I know that I cannot help you see what is so marvelous and, and terrifying and healing and comforting and joy-inducing and awe-provoking and life-changing in these chapters. And yet I'm not discouraged because I know that God is so kind and so gracious and so involved in our lives that the, that the Holy Spirit can actually take his truth and he can apply it to our hearts. And, and he's done it for many of you and he might do it for you today. And I pray that as we examine these chapters and you see this is who your God is, that he will turn on the light again. Since last September, we have been studying the book of Exodus in order to find God's answer to the question asked by Pharaoh, king of Egypt, in chapter 5 of the book. He says, who is the Lord? Who is the Lord? Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That is, who is I am? This person who reveals himself in the pages of Scripture. I'm not an uh, emotionally expressive person by nature. If you know me well, you know that. But when I, I ponder the fact that God answers this question most deeply, most thoroughly, most memorably, not after the inaction of the ten plagues, not after the crossing of the Red Sea or in the speaking of the Ten Commandments, but after Israel plunges herself into idolatry, after she shatters the covenant just ratified. I feel some kind of way when I think about that. It is truly unexpected and delightful, as I pray you'll see. And we can't do justice in 30 or 40 minutes to what God reveals in this text, but what I would like to do today is to point out five truths that you need to know about I am. Five truths that you need to know about the God who made you and knows you, about the one and only God, the God who's not one of many, but is one of a kind, without parallel or rival and equal, or or equal in all of existence. Five truths that arise from his disposition toward Moses and the Israelites after they commit idolatry. In the first place, notice with me from the opening verses of chapter 33 that God's justice is forbearing. God's justice is forbearing. Taking the broad sweep of God's activity throughout the book of Exodus, this is a God who absolutely decimated the demons of Egypt one by one, toppling their false gods. This is a God who in a single night poured out his deadly wrath on every single firstborn son of every Egyptian household from the least to the greatest. This is a God whose grim justice engulfed the Egyptian army in the murky depths of the Red Sea. This is a God who thunders from the summit of Sinai, a God who had just told the Israelites, in chapter 20, that he would visit the iniquities of the fathers on the, on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. This is a God who is not to be trifled with. And the Israelites have done exactly that. They've taken the things that he's revealed about what he expects from them, and they immediately turn around and they break, they shatter the covenant that he's made with them. And after the Levites slay the thousands who had instigated the rebellion, And the dust begins to settle. The hundreds of thousands of faithless Hebrews are still breathing. 
The wrath of God is simmering and steaming, but it has not boiled over and consumed them like you might expect from him. Certainly this isn't because God couldn't destroy them at the snap of a finger. We've seen his unquestioned, unmatched power in this book. Certainly it is not because God is too squeamish to mete out judgment. We've seen him do so, nor is it that God has no right. These people had obligated themselves to the covenant, and they had broken it. They were without excuse, and yet here they stand, still breathing. Think about this. They walk outside their tents that next morning, and what is on the ground? God's provision, manna everywhere. After they broke the covenant, God is still providing them even after this descent into rebellion. Now, you might make the observation on reading the opening verses of chapter 33 that God is anything but happy with the Israelites. He seems to have withdrawn from them. Say to the people of Israel, he says to Moses in verse 5, you are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. Some of you mothers are familiar with that kind of tone. What God is asking for is a spirit of mourning and repentance, but as any good parent or teacher understands. There's a very important difference between the kind of anger that you would show toward, say, a salesperson who's lying to you about a product that you're thinking about buying, and the anger that you might have towards a child in your own family or your own classroom. They're two totally different types of things. There's a difference between an anger concentrated on retribution and and an anger concentrated on restoration. If, If my kids lied to me, you better believe I'm going to be angry about that. They would never do that, right, kids? If they choose to disobey me, you better believe I'm going to see red. I'm going to be angry. But what is going to make me the most angry is how that disobedient choice severs our relationship and squanders their potential. Why? Because I care about them. They're my children. This is the nature of God's forbearing justice here in chapter 33. He withdraws from them, not because he doesn't want to be around them, but because they literally would not be able to survive his holy presence. They're not ready for that. We long for God's presence. We sing about it, we pray for it, we want to be close to God, at least that's what we say. But I wonder if we're really ready for that. We uh, long for God's justice, his, his righteousness to reign. We pray for it. We long for it. We sing about it. But friends, there is a reason why God's justice delays. It's because if he were to bring justice to the earth in all of its fullness, we would be vaporized in an instant. We would be done. And yes, I know that many have made the very important observation attributed to William Gladstone in the 19th century that justice delayed is justice delayed denied. True enough. And the last thing I want to do is excuse injustice in the world uh, by telling those trampled by corruption and systemic oppression that they should just wait a little while longer. I don't want to be counted among those who defend the status quo when it comes to matters of justice toward the immigrant or to the widow or to the orphan. When the injured party is another human being, yes, it's true that justice delayed is justice denied. But in the ultimate sense, in the sense that God is in fact the one being offended by our sin and our disobedience and our rebellion, he alone has the prerogative to stay his hand of judgment, and you'd better be glad he does. 
Because not a one of us can stand before him. We can't stand before this type of a God. Yes, let his kingdom come, but let it start in the hearts of our friends and our neighbors and our relatives and in ourselves because when that gavel falls a final time and the judgment is meted out and we have exhausted our chances to repent, those who bear their own sins will never escape. I, for one, am glad that he is forbearing in his justice. And I know that there are those of you out there listening to, to, to me today, and you're thinking that you've used up all of your chances. Like, there is no more chance left. That God's grace has been exhausted, that you can never go back and fix the things that you've done, and therefore your life is just a total waste. At best, like you're a cautionary tale, a warning to others. Don't go the way that I went. And you come to church and you see all the smiling faces and the nice hairstyles and the shiny boots and the well-pressed shirts and you think, man, I, I don't think I fit in here. But let me ask you a question. Are you still breathing or not? Like, are you still is Is your heart pumping blood throughout the rest of your body still or are you dead? Because if you are still breathing, it's not over for you. Like even after idolatry, after rebellion, after a fall from grace, after addiction, after you burned your friend, after you cheated on your wife, after you lied to your parents, after you gossiped about your buddy, after you bowed down to that golden calf in the secret places of your heart, friend, it is not over. You are still breathing, and every single cubic inch of air that you suck into your lungs is incontrovertible evidence that God's grace is for you, that his justice is forbearing, that he hasn't brought down that hammer yet. And so that's the first thing we want to make sure we see in this passage. God's justice is forbearing. But notice with me in the second place that God's mercy is free. God's mercy is free. God promises that the Israelites are going to survive this, that they're going to make it to the promised land, even though his fatherly anger is still white hot. But then Moses sees this tension. He, he knows that the promised land isn't the real prize. The real prize is God himself. So Moses goes to God on behalf of the people. He says, listen, if you, if you uh, don't go with us, then you just leave us right where we are because I don't want to go into that promised land without you. You're the real prize. So God promises, he says, my presence will be with you. In spite of the idolatry and the stiff-necked rebellion I get from you, I'll go with you. And then Moses gets really bold. He isn't satisfied with this. He wants more. And so he says in verse 18 of chapter 33, please show me your glory. Show me your glory, your the, the word glory related to the word weight or uh, weightiness. It, it refers to what makes God weighty, what makes him significant. His glory is the essence of who he is. So what Moses is asking of God here is really remarkable. He wants to know God for real. He wants to see him as he is. He wants to behold what makes God, God. And amazingly, God doesn't just tell him to go away. He says, okay, I'm going to make my goodness to pass before you. And I know we're moving kind of quickly through the passage here, but think about how remarkable even that statement is. God, show me your glory. Okay, I'm going to let my goodness pass before you. 
I mean, that is radical. That statement is in and of itself incredible because the glory of the gods of the surrounding nations had nothing to do with their goodness. For them, uh, the gods were all powerful and strong, but were they good? You know, it just depended on the day. But God says, I'm going to show you what makes me glorious. It's the same thing as my goodness. And then he tells him in verse 19, the first thing that you need to know is that I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I show mercy. In other words, one of the critical things that we need to know about God, about I am, is that his mercy is free. Free, yes, of course, in the sense that we cannot buy it with our good works. It's free. We can get it without payment. But free, in this passage, uh, this passage is speaking of God's freedom along different lines. His mercy is free in the sense that he is completely unobligated by anybody else but himself for how he dispenses that mercy. Like, God, who are you going to show mercy to? Where is your mercy going to go? Wherever I want it to go, I'm free. See, God's mercy is free. He's completely free to show mercy toward whomever he wants. So if you really want to know God, then you have to reckon with the fact that he's not up in heaven like looking around for people who are particularly good or particularly wealthy or particularly gifted or particularly beautiful or particularly smart so that he can strategize like, how can I get these people on my team? If you've ever said something like, man, if God saved that guy, like if, if that guy got saved, that would be a game changer. Like that would, that, would be, that would make such a huge impact for the kingdom. As if to say, God needs a certain type of person in order to do what he wants to do in the world. Then what you're doing is you're putting God on your level. Because God doesn't need anybody. His mercy is Free, he shows mercy to whom he shows mercy. Paul, in Romans chapter 9, quotes this passage to show that it wasn't up to the children of Israel or to anyone worshiping in the Roman church to sort of catch God's eye and earn his mercy. He just shows mercy in accordance with his good pleasure. He he doesn't check with any of us. He doesn't gather the angels around and say, hey, what do you think about this guy? I'm thinking about showing him mercy. What do you think? He does exactly what he wants to do. His mercy is free. By the way, something else he's expressing in this statement to Moses is that he is completely free to explain himself or not. Moses, I'm going to show mercy to whoever I want to show mercy to. Like if Moses had any notion that he was owed any explanation whatsoever, then God is making it clear here, not so. He says, I'm free to show mercy to whomever I want, and I don't need to explain myself to you. So often we get it into our brains that just because we're curious about something or we have a question about something that God owes us an explanation and that we ought to be able to get to the answer. And to a point, that desire for knowledge and understanding is a good quality, but sometimes the answer is that's for me to know and you to find out whenever I decide to tell you. I'm free to do whatever I want to do. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. That means that there are certain realities, certain truths that God knows exhaustively and we simply cannot know because he has chosen not to reveal those things to us. That's his right. God's mercy is free. He 
dispenses it according to his own good pleasure, and he reserves the right to explain himself or not. And this is one of his wonderful qualities. But thirdly, notice, moving on in the passage, that God's God's presence is fearsome. God's presence is fearsome. Moses says, I want to see your glory, and God replies, that's okay to a point, and I'm going to cause my goodness to pass before you, but you can't see my face. I'm going to to let you see my back, whatever that means, right? But you can't see my face. Why? Because no man can see my face and live. And so he invites Moses up onto Mount Sinai, and, and, and he hides him in this cleft of a rock while his glory passes by, and Moses is shielded from it because God's presence is fearsome. Now, most people who are familiar with the Bible recognize that in the centuries before the cross, God was certainly known to, to be messed with. One day, uh, for example, King David and some of his men, they bring the Ark of the Covenant away from enemy territory, and they try to bring it into Jerusalem. Uh, basically, the Ark of the Covenant, if you uh, have been paying attention to the book of Exodus, you know that that's kind of a representation of the throne of God. That's where he says, I'm going to meet with you. And so there's these very strict rules about how they're supposed to handle that. No one's ever supposed to touch the Ark of the Covenant. And, and so they're bringing it into the city on this cart, and one of the guys reaches out because the Ark is about to fall off the cart, and he reaches out with his hand, and he touches the Ark to make sure that it doesn't fall off and God kills him right then and there. God's presence is fearsome. Even Moses' own uh, uh, nephews experience this. Uh, these sons of Aaron, they try to improve the worship service in the tabernacle by burning strange incense before the Lord. And they do this and struck by lightning and they are done. I mean, we could cite dozens of of Old Testament examples of the fearsome greatness of God, but for some reason we tend to speak as though God is just not that way anymore. We relegate all of that to the Old Testament times. That was back then. Things are different now. I don't think so. I mean, have you noticed the way that Jesus Christ preaches about uh, the topic of hell? Jesus is the greatest hellfire preacher ever to live. He preaches more about the topic of hell than any other single person recorded in Scripture. He warned his listeners about the unquenchable fires of hell more than anyone whose ministry is described in the pages of the Bible. But what about the writer of the Hebrews? He reminds us that one day God is going to shake the very foundations of the earth so mightily that it will completely unravel that we must approach him with reverence and fear because our God is a consuming fire. Or think about what Peter says. He warns that one day the elements themselves will melt with an intense heat at the end of all things. Or the last book in the Bible, the book of Revelation. Have you read the book of Revelation recently? Very last book of the Bible. Is God any less fearsome at the very end of the world than he is in the case of Moses and the Israelites? I mean, after you've read about the people begging the mountains to fall on them and save them from the wrath of Jesus Christ, and this great feast of kings and armies laid out for the birds of prey, and the arrival of Jesus himself with his garments dipped in blood, I don't think there's anything more fearsome that you can imagine. See, from cover to cover, the Bible tells us and shows us that our God, his presence is fearsome. 
can't think of any greater evidence showing that our culture has plunged into idolatry than the conspicuous absence of this reality from the thoughts and words of so many of us. We don't think of God this way. Not nearly as often as the Bible presents him as such. Too often we're like the poet Heinrich Hein, who on his deathbed is supposed to have said, God will forgive me. That's his job. You see, we think God, if he really exists, must just be this really nice guy. And and listen, everybody's situation is a little different. But I can't tell you how many dozens of times someone has told me, I I know God's forgiven me, but what I'm really struggling with is I can't forgive myself. Like a lot of you have said this. And and, and I'm sure you've heard it many times yourself. So if you're thinking that I'm singling you out or something, you've told me this, and and you're you're like, why is he preaching it just me? A lot of people have said it. And I don't mean to be harsh, but isn't part of the reason why it's a bigger deal for us that we forgive ourselves than that we are right with God? Because we have become so much more significant in our own minds than the one who spoke the world into existence. That we don't worship a fearsome God, we have a small God. God will forgive me, that's his job. But when our God is small, then his ability to deal with our sin, with our need for forgiveness, is insufficient. And so we start to grow anxious, and it becomes more important to us to be okay with me than it is to be okay with God. Friends, whether or not you're okay with you, is, it's way less important than whether you are right with the God of all the earth. And when you recognize that you can't even see his face without being utterly destroyed, that he is a fearsome, awesome, wonderful, incredibly, blazingly, gloriously holy being, then your affections will sort themselves out into the proper priorities and it will be your life's greatest concern whether you are accepted before him or not. But of course you uh, have read this passage or you've heard it read. And so you know that following close behind this awesome reality is a treasured truth beyond all comprehension. Because as God lifts his hands away from the eyes of Moses and he allows him to see the trailing glory of the divine, as he proclaims the meaning of his very name, I am, we see that not only is God's justice forbearing, his mercy free, his presence fearsome. But in the fourth place, God's faithfulness is fathomless. God's faithfulness is fathomless. So put yourself in Moses' shoes. You've been invited into closer fellowship with the God of of the universe unlike any other person ever to live. You wake up early. You grab the stone tablets that you know God is going to write on when you get to the top of Mount Sinai, and you set out once again toward the summit. Ask yourself this, what do you think God is going to show you? You know he's going to reveal his goodness, his glory. You know you're going to see something that no one else has ever seen. What do you imagine he will show? What do you think God will say is his essence, his glory, his significance? I'm not sure that all of us would expect what God reveals to him in chapter 34, verse 6. He says, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, 
slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Certainly his fearsome and holy justice is represented in this self-description, just like it was on display in the destruction of the 3,000 idolatrous instigators in the chapter before, but there is no mistaking the emphasis of what God reveals about himself in this passage. I mean, God, notice how God himself, a God who never speaks out of turn, he never wastes a word, never utters an empty word, piles up truth after truth after truth, confirming what is often so hard to believe, yet so wonderful to behold. Our God's faithfulness is fathomless. It is beyond limit. His loyal love is limitless. His commitment to his covenant is inexhaustible. Do you you see how he confirms this? He says, I'm abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That is, he never runs out. Never rations it. Always overflowing. Bursting, if you will, with love toward the people he has made. He keeps steadfast love for thousands. That is, uh, this, this phrase echoes a similar statement he made earlier on in chapter 20 where we saw that the thousands toward which God is showing mercy are thousands of not just people but generations. That is an unimaginable number of people. I mean, think about a thousand generations worth of people. He forgives iniquity and transgression and sin just in case you might want to imagine a category of disobedience that lies beyond the bounds of his forgiveness. He piles up these terms together to show that his heart is to forgive all manner of rebellion. Yes, he visits the sins and the iniquities of the fathers on the third and fourth generation, but his mercies are to thousands of generations. His desire to forgive sin outweighs, think about this, his desire to forgive sin outweighs his desire to show retribution by a factor greater than 300 to 1. This is why we see the greater glory of God after the Israelites have broken the covenant. The quality of God that we most delight in when we fellowship with him is his fathomless, forgiving faithfulness. It's these twin truths that he is utterly holy and he will, he will not suffer the presence of evil in his sight and that he actually overflows with mercy towards sinners who deserve his judgment. So he's not this cosmic judge who just destroys indiscriminately anyone who's unworthy of his presence, nor is he this cosmic nice guy who's just glad you're paying him any attention at all. No, he is the righteous one who nevertheless is faithful toward the undeserving. So the more we know this God, this merciful, faithful God, the greater our joy and the greater our ability to follow him. See, this is the thing, this is the quality of God that actually blows the angels in heaven away. They see God forgiving sinners and they just marvel. They behold God's glory in the church, a family of redeemed rebels, They can't get enough. The welcome, Jesus says, of one sinner into heaven is mind-blowingly wonderful to them. Now, I can spend all kinds of time explaining to you the different theological movements in the history of redemption that caused this to be true, and uh, there is certainly a place for that. Every one of those movements, uh, the incarnation of Jesus, 
his active obedience and keeping the covenant, his atoning sacrifice on the cross, all these different things that God has done to make it possible for sinners to stand before him are wonderful to behold and they're important for us to consider. But let us not forget that every contour of that story is shaped in accordance with the character of I am. Like he forgives not just because Jesus died for our sin, but because that is who he is. He is a forgiving God. He shows mercy because that's who he is. He welcomes sinners because of who he is. And I just want you to know that you can believe that, that you can know that that's true. You can know that whoever calls on the name of the Lord, whoever cries out to him for forgiveness, is speaking to a patient person, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, a wonderful God who delights, yes, delights to forgive sin. And therefore, yes, come humbly, but come boldly before his throne and find mercy and grace. Now, I'm telling you that in view of the mercies of God, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And if you you leave here today without calling on him for forgiveness, it's not because he's frowning on you, but only because of your stubborn unbelief. So please, just turn to him. He is patient and kind and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and welcomes the sinner and shows faithfulness and steadfast love to the undeserving. So I plead with you to stop running from him and turn toward him. Give your life to him because for as long as you live, you will not be able to plumb the depths of his faithfulness and his forgiveness toward his children. His justice is forbearing. His mercy is free. His presence is fearsome. His faithfulness is fathomless. But the truth of the matter is that this passage does, for all of its wonderful truth, leave us in search of something more. So notice with me in the fifth place that at least in this particular passage, God's glory is fading. God's glory is fading. You say, wait a second, that doesn't sound right. Let me explain what I mean. After God proclaims his glorious name to Moses on the top of Mount Sinai, he actually reiterates the demands of the covenant. He demonstrates that he intends to continue his relationship to the children of Israel, even now, even after they've broken faith with him. Moses receives these covenant demands written on stone by the finger of God himself. And after 40 days and 40 nights, he comes down from the mountain. And we're told in chapter 34, verse 29, that Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. So as a result of being in the presence of the Almighty, Moses sort of reflects this glory on the countenance of his own face. His face is shining. And so it sort of scares everybody. They want to get away from Moses at first. So he calls them over and he starts to teach them God's commands. And they behold a reflection of God's glory in Moses' own countenance. But did you notice what Moses does? After he's done speaking to the people, look at chapter 34, verse 33. What does he do? We're told when Moses was done speaking, he would put a veil over his face. Why is that? Why why would Moses put a veil over his face? Was it because the glory of God was just so bright that the people couldn't handle it? No, they were just looking at him in the face. No, the Apostle Paul, in his 
second letter to the church in Corinth explains why. He says in 2 Corinthians 3, Moses put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might, might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. Moses put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. In other words, Moses puts this veil on so that the Israelites can't see the glory fade away. It wasn't that they couldn't see the glory. They saw it whenever Moses spoke to them. It was that Moses didn't want them to see it fade. You see, as amazing as these chapters are, if we just take them at face value, they leave us in this uncomfortable tension. Yes, God is merciful. Yes, God is faithful. Yes, God is patient. But he's still far away from them. And when they leave Mount Sinai, the glory is going to fade even more. And you fast forward just a few centuries the high priest falls down and breaks his neck in the shadow of this very tent that they're about to build. And, and the writer of 1 Samuel tells us the glory has altogether departed from the children of Israel. See, we need something more than a tense and temporary detente, a sort of treaty between this just God and his unjust people. We need something permanently that's going to solve the problem. But the good news is that all the glories of the Father shine through in the person of his Son, Jesus Christ, that he has sent his Spirit into the world so that not just those who got to hang out with Jesus on the streets of Galilee, but that all of us might actually fellowship with him. And we can see the glory of God shining, not in the face of Moses that fades away, but in the face of Jesus Christ. And so instead of a fading glory, those who are in Christ experience this increasing glory, a glory that changes and transforms us, a glory that grows in visibility gradually as we continue to follow Christ day after day. As Paul describes in 2 Corinthians 3, we all with unveiled face, we take the veil away and we behold the glory of the Lord in the face of Jesus Christ as we're transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to the next. Friends, this is our God. This is I am. He is forbearing in his justice, free in his mercy, fearsome in his presence, fathomlessly faithful. And his glory, the glory that would begin to fade in the face of Moses, shines fully in the face of Jesus Christ. And I just wonder, have you actually encountered this God? I don't mean to ask if, you, if you've had a moment where you like have been baptized or joined a church or whether you grew up reading the Bible or not. I, I mean to ask, have you had a personal encounter with this God? Do you know him? Friends, don't leave here today until you get that question settled. Would you bow with me in prayer now before this God? God, to even address you with human words is an unbelievable privilege. And to know that you hear us because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ is, is overwhelming. And so, Father, we pray today that if there are any in this room hanging on to the ways in which they have broken faith with you, 
wondering whether you are good enough to forgive. Wondering whether you are merciful and kind enough to move forward with them. I pray that today you would lift their burden and that through the confession of that sin and the request for forgiveness that you would cause them to walk forward in love and gratitude and faithfulness themselves. And Lord, most of all, we pray for any in this room who have just never met you personally. They maybe have had a religious experience or uh, grew up reading about about you in the Bible or uh, hearing about you in a church, but they've never met you. And I pray that today, Spirit of God, please awaken the hearts of every person in this room to trust in Jesus Christ and to enter into that personal relationship with you through the work that Christ completed on the cross. Father, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.